Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. Today our guest is Dr. Annie Shadel. Annie is a certified mental performance consultant, and she is the director of mental performance for the NFL's New York Jets. She's also worked with a bunch of other athletic organizations like USA Track and Field, USA Baseball, and the International Amateur Athletic Foundation. She also happens to be an incredible athlete herself. She was a former professional runner and a two-time NCAA national champion at the University of Nebraska. And this was a really fun episode for me. I told Annie at the beginning of our conversation that I unintentionally put together what equated to an outline that was just a former athlete therapy session covering some of the things that I was not very good at when I was an athlete and some of the things I'm still not very good at today. But it worked out really well. It made for an entertaining conversation, a vulnerable conversation with someone who's dedicated a career to helping the best athletes in the world be their very best, which is where Annie focuses. She doesn't focus her time and her career on going from bad to good. She focuses on how we can go from good to great. And she does it at the very highest level of athletics. We covered a ton of ground, starting with her role with the New York Jets, the importance of self-awareness in elite athletes. We talked about perfectionism and comparison at the elite athletic level. We covered the space between worthy pursuits, something I like to spend a lot of time talking about. We covered contentment. Is this good? Is this bad? Is it somewhere in between? We talked about what leads to actually changing behavior. And finally, we concluded with a conversation structured around finding balance. Annie, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I want to thank you for your perspective and your wisdom. I really enjoyed getting to know you. I really enjoyed spending some time with you and sharing some space with you. Thank you for being a part of this. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Annie Shadell. Again, just thank you for joining me, and I'm really excited to talk to you, so thanks for being here. It's wonderful to be here. I'm excited to talk with you as well. As I prepared for this conversation, the outline came together really easy for me, and what I realized was it really just became a a former athlete therapy session here, (laughs) so I'm probably just going to turn you into a therapist, but I think that may make for some good listening. So before I do turn you into that therapist, why don't we just start by going through your athletic journey a bit briefly. Give us a high-level version of your athletic journey. Yeah, so I would say that I grew up in a small town in Nebraska, South Sioux City, Nebraska. We had a really good women's basketball. And so I started playing sports very early, loved basketball, wanted to be in shape for basketball, and then discovered I was like pretty good at running. So my first like cross country race in eighth grade, I beat all of the girls and all of the boys. And so I was like, oh, I'm actually like pretty good at this. Those early sport experiences just led the way in terms of me being able to understand pushing myself, setting goals, how fun it is to achieve those goals, and just kind of followed those passions and that, that love for running, actually, and then ended up in Nebraska, had probably what most most people's journeys are, where you're there freshman year, and it doesn't go as expected, and you have a lot of learning and growing to do over those four years, so a lot a lot there in terms of ups and downs and, and wayfinding. That's a common theme in my story is just wayfinding my way, 
and then ended up running steeplechase for a while. Obviously, as a distance runner, you run cross country, indoors, outdoors. My love was always the 1500 meters. So ran steeplechase for three years and then ran fast enough indoors, won a national title indoors in the mile, which then let me run the 1500 meters outdoors. Uh, where I won a second national title outdoors my senior year. I'm just curious, Anne, what's a national title winning mile, just to embarrass me for a second? Sure. So my indoor, when I won nationals, I won with a time of 4.38. These women are running so fast right now. So they they would have blown my time out. And then outdoors, I I won with a 4.11. And I have my my PB in the 15 is 4.08. Wow. Wow. We live on the Houston Marathon route. And so just a few weeks ago, a American record was set yes. here in Houston in the marathon. So that was neat yes. to see. But okay, keep going. Sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah. One of my former training partners set that record. Oh, wow. You know, uh, Kira? Or, yes. She's I don't amazing. know her, obviously. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, amazing. the story is amazing. I think she took years off and then came back and at 38 years old, which is my age, so it makes me feel good, sets the American record. It it really highlights, I guess there's a lot of paths to get to greatness for sure. It, it shocked me reading her story. She's amazing. She's amazing. I'm so proud of her. It's awesome to see. Absolutely. So national championships and then you were heading, heading I guess, after college, you went professional? Yes, right. And I think this is pretty interesting in terms of people's stories because we have these turning points in our life. And at the moment, we don't necessarily recognize that they're turning points. When I won that second national title, that was a major turning point. My understanding, right, is like, oh, yay, I'm running fast. This is really fun. Yay, I'm setting a personal best. And what I didn't realize was just how much winning that would then shape my professional career, right? So now I cross the finish line. I'm one of the top people coming out of college. So usually between nationals, um, NCAA nationals and U.S. nationals, there's this two-week window. And that's usually where you're signing with an agent, you're signing with shoe companies because the shoe companies want you on the start line at U.S. senior nationals in their kits, right? There was a lot happening in my life with that. And two weeks later, I'm signed with an agent in a Reebok uniform Two weeks after nationals, I'm on a plane to Europe. I didn't recognize just how powerful those moments were in terms of shifting what was going to happen next in my life. Did you have someone guiding you at that point or were you making these decisions blindly somewhat? Yeah, I, I, my coach in college, Jay Dirksen, so at Nebraska, so he definitely helped me a lot. And then my best friend Ann Gaffigan was a steeplechaser. She was done with eligibility a year before me. She was basically doing the professional circuit racing. She had sent the American record uh, the season before in 2004. So she definitely helped guide me as well. So I definitely had a, a lot of good guidance coming out. But still, this is your first experience. So everything is new for you. And how did your professional career go? How long were you a professional? So I raced from 2005 and then 2008. And then out, and we're going to come back to kind of the end of your journey, so you don't have to get into that now. I, I certainly want to linger there because I think it's an important subject. But how did you end up coming full circle into your current role? In undergrad, I studied exercise science. So as a runner, you're very interested in how do I train my body, optimize recovery, optimize nutrition, hydration, everything in that way. And then through those experiences, and for sure during my professional racing career, I became very, very interested in the psychology and these environments. So 
really understanding, wow, there's some very talented people that just fall apart when the pressure's on. And there are people that just like work their butts off, keep grinding away and like get it done. And then there's right people that are extremely talented, extremely tough and like get it done consistently. And so I became very fascinated and interested in what those athletes do, the best of the best, and how do they live their life? What type of mindset do they bring? How do they get through hard parts of their journey? How do they get through injury? How do they get through bad days of training or bad races? So that kind of became my focal point. So when I did not make the Olympic team in 2008, that was crushing. So I call that my quarter-life crisis. So another major turning point in my life where you write, you have these dreams, you have these goals, you work very hard towards these goals and they don't happen for you. And that leaves you feeling pretty hurt and vulnerable and a little lost through those moments, through those failures, or I say like quote failures. It really has you reflect on and think about what's going on in your life and, and where you want to go and what you want to do. So psychology became again, very interesting to me, but also was, I I say that I feel like I cheated my master's program because I just felt like I was working on myself the entire time because it was all counseling and psychology and sports psychology. And so going through my career, going through my environments and, and trying to figure out maybe where I missed that other people got right. My dissertation and research interest for my PhD was, imagine this, medal winners. So Olympic track and field gold medal winners. So we studied the 2012 Olympic team and really trying to understand and dive into these athletes' narratives and stories. So for me, it was just very much interest, curiosity in terms of what did these athletes get right that I got wrong. I didn't plan to go here, but you used the word failure a couple of times. Yes. And I had one of the greatest setbacks in my life in 2020. And I remember talking to a mentor and told this mentor, this is the greatest failure of my life. And my mentor kind of recoiled, just hated that term and spoke to me about the language I used around what had happened there and kind of walked through how in their mind, in my mind too, it wasn't a failure. I certainly think one can fail without the experience or the person being a failure. And there were major successes there. But do you think about the words you use? Do you put a lot of value on the word failure? Is failure and setback, are they synonymous? Does it matter to you? What do you think about what words we yeah, use? I love this. This is, we're diving deep. I love it. So I say like, quote, failure, right? So when I was 25, that was a quote, failure for me. And I say, quote, failure, because in those moments, as I've continued to grow, as I've continued to evolve and mature, you really recognize them as, again, more turning points. So you have these experiences, you have these very hard lessons, but like through that, there's so much growth. And I, and I say this all the time to my sports psychology athletes that I work with and clients, those really, really hard experiences make me so much better at my job because I understand and like feel what they feel and and have the compassion for those like really hard experiences, right? And I also have the perspective to know you're going to be just fine. Like I understand in this moment, this is like really painful. This is very difficult. And I like see you, I validate you. You have every single right to feel that. And there's also this other healthy perspective of when we look back at this in five years or a year, just how much growth this will actually have for you in your life. 
I use the word failure because a lot of athletes and coaches use the, use this word. And I would just say in society, we use failure a lot, but they are really these like incredible learning experiences that help shape us. Right. And we, we learn so much from those painful experiences, unfortunately, but they really help us grow and thrive and show us more of our purpose once we can kind of work through, work through those emotions. Well, the funny thing is when my mentor said that to me, I kind of recoiled because in my mind, the idea that I couldn't utter the word failure was was weakness, that if I couldn't look at an experience and, and in some sense, any time you try to achieve a goal and you have an undesired outcome, it's a failure. So in my mind, I was going, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I plan to do X and I didn't achieve X. It's a failure. And then I spent a lot of time reading about it. It kind of sent me down this rabbit hole about the use of language. And I I just adjusted my view a bit. I still believe that you should somewhat not let words affect you in that way. But I thought to myself, and I wrote this down in a journal, if thoughts are important and actions are important, then the words I use to describe those thoughts and actions are probably important too. So I started calling this a learning experience or a setback or something there. But anyways, like I said, I I find that interesting and we'll probably find a lot of those caveats here. But I want to jump forward a little bit to your current role as director of mental performance for the New York Jets. So I'm fascinated by this move within sports to prioritize holistic health and to prioritize holistic performance improvement, because that's not something that existed for me when I was competing. But I really think it would have had an enormous impact, beneficial impact. Walk me through your role with the New York Jets and how you fit into their overall goals. This will be a little bit of an education session because I love education. So Yes, my title is Director of Mental Performance. And so my skill set is I like to say teach and educate on performance psychology. If we think about that space of performance psychology, I'm also a big advocate of positive psychology, right? And so that whole body of literature looks at the best of the best and what do they do, right? How do they set up their lives? How do they approach things? What's kind of their mindset in these areas, right? That's the space that I live in. Not just doing just above average, but flourishing. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of, that's like my lens. It's important to state that I am, I'm not a licensed psychologist. So I don't diagnose, I don't treat, I don't do therapy. That like delineation is like very important within the NFL, within the NBA, within the Olympic movement, there are clear delineations of when this is mental health clinical needs. And then we'll just say that that's like red. I like to work in colors. So like red. And then there's this like yellow space where it's, we are struggling, right? We are going through some situations and that's where I work very closely with mental health providers. So we work very closely together to make sure that we're meeting the needs depending on where this athlete is. In my current role, we work on basically being able to meet the needs of what this individual is needing support in. Am am I hearing this right? Your role is not necessarily helping them from red to yellow, but from going from good to great is where your role fits in? Yes. So basically yellow to green and really understanding that skill set. There's so much of that in terms of what athletes go through, right? So if we think about injuries, if we think about rookies, if we think about transitioning new coaches, new teammates, just different things in their own game that they're needing to work on or wanting to work on. So that is more of my role in my current space. 
Well, I think it makes perfect sense because good enough is not good enough in the NFL. It's got to be great. So that that makes sense. Well, I went through your bio and you listed a number of traits that you focus on, Anne. And one that jumped out to me was self-awareness. And the reason it jumped out for me is because this is a trait that I'm extremely passionate about. If there were a top four or five traits I want to pass on to my daughter, self-awareness is certainly in there. So speak about why self-awareness is so important and how you go about cultivating self-awareness in your athletes. Yes, I think if you think about self-awareness, one thing that I'm a little stuck on right now that I that I really like to talk about is you have to understand your own psychology really taking an understanding of your own self and your own mind and how your own psychology works, right? And how it works to help you flourish and how sometimes it works to hinder you and, and hold yourself back. Definitely a, an advocate of understanding your own self. So in, in yoga, I'm actually a certified yoga instructor as well. And there's a self-study. So in yoga, it's very much like self-study. So understanding again, who you are, what you're doing, how you want to be as a person, right? So now we're tying in more positive psychology with like values-driven, purpose-driven, having my why. And so really building that self-awareness in terms of understanding yourself and then really in terms of performance, like how am I living my day-to-day experience? Am I using those values in the way that I want to be? Am I creating really good habits that are going to allow me to flourish? Am I moving closer towards my goals? And the best athletes have to have that self-awareness. They have to be able to have those real hard discussions and take a look in the mirror and not like in a critical way. So a lot of athletes have a very critical voice, but in a very compassionate, gentle, like, hey, let's do this, right? Like you can do this. You're kind of getting in your own way right now. And so really building on that own self-awareness so that they can reach those goals. A big component of self-awareness for me is acknowledging where your holes are, what you're not good at, and being very honest with yourself. Is that a key component? Sure. So yes, it's important to like identify those areas that you can improve on. But I think a lot of the athletes that I work with are extremely critical of themselves. They beat themselves down and nothing is ever good enough. When you are the 1% of the 1% as an athlete, like you're never good enough because you're always comparing yourself. And so I think sometimes really picking out our own weaknesses can be more damaging and destructive than actually taking more consideration and thought into, okay, here are the things that I'm really good at. Here are my strengths. Let me continue to work on my weaknesses, but like I'm more of a strengths-based approach in terms of really understanding, identifying what I'm really, really good at too. Because I think we miss on those on those things when we don't bring our, our strengths to the table every day. That's interesting. Sure, I want to double click here and make sure I understand this. So your advice is not to dwell or not to ruminate on what they're bad at. Is that fair? You may be aware of it and work on those things, but if you tip into rumination, that's the problem. Explain that to me a little further. Right. So it has to be productive. If we're reflecting, if we're working on setting goals, if we're working on areas that we want to identify and get better at, but I oftentimes athletes... They just immediately focus on all the things that went wrong in a, in a performance, went wrong at a practice, and just like fixate on that. When I do like a debrief of a game or a competition, it's like, what went well? We're going to start right there. Like what actually went well today for you? What worked? What things did you, did you try? How was your mental? How was your physical? You know, how did you feel? 
more of identifying what went well. And then, okay, next, what's an area that you want to improve on? So basically, you're just balancing it. But I, I, I will caution and say you're not backing up and not looking at those areas you need to get better at, but you're balancing it. Yeah, you're not living in negative space, dwelling on what's going wrong. And as I think about an NFL football team and this idea of this holistic health, they have people that are going to tell them what they do wrong, and those are called coaches. You have a different role. There's plenty of people telling me what went wrong on film. I have someone to come in and tell me what went right, and I think that's an interesting approach. One of my questions was around what unique challenges you face. Is that the most unique challenge, this excessive perfectionism? I think for elite athletes nowadays, and even just thinking about the Olympic Games from the summer and now the winter, athletes, they're just in a fishbowl. All of their actions are judged thoroughly, right? Like we're preparing for the draft. And it's incredible to me to just see the pressure and the expectations on athletes is incredible. And I think that that has shifted dramatically since since my time as an athlete. Managing those stressors and having your life be so public creates a lot of additional stress for athletes. And so I think that that is more of a unique space across the board in athletics right now. I think we're seeing it negatively impact the mental health of athletes as well, which is all of this pressure that is put on athletes. Well, I think you brought up an interesting piece too. That fishbowl they're in, that environment is the best of the best. And we as humans are so naturally inclined to compare ourselves to our natural environment. When you're comparing yourself in general, it's a bad idea. But when you're comparing yourself to the elite of the elite, it can only lead one way. I want to back you up and to the moment your athletic journey ended, that 2008 Olympics. And I want to linger there for a bit. I'm really interested in the space between worthy pursuits or the space between two worthy goals, because that space if I'm speaking honestly, is a mystery for me. I think it may be for others also. I can give you max effort in that space of uncertainty. I can give you resilience, if you will. I can get back up and fight. That's not a problem, and I don't think that's a problem for most athletes. But I've not figured out how to maintain peak emotional performance in between worthy goals. When I can't find that next mountain to climb after I just climbed a mountain, or I I'm climbing my next mountain because it's in front of me, but it's not really anywhere near as fulfilling as my last pursuit. That's where I struggle mentally. What I want to ask you is when we're in this space of uncertainty, this space of searching, how do we maintain confidence? How do we maintain or hold on to positivity or even find fulfillment when you're in this space? I think I'll start with as athletes, we are really focused on and we love that pursuit of the goal in front of us. And we see this with Olympic athletes and with Olympic athletes that I've worked with and it's Olympic year and I'm on this pursuit. I'm climbing this mountain. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And we forget all of the physical, emotional, mental energy that we're like pouring into that goal. And then what happens post-Olympics? We crash. We don't feel motivated. We feel drained. We feel worn out. 
that is very normal and natural because if you think about how much time, energy, effort you put into that, like your body also has to recover and come back down to like homeostasis to balance itself out. And that's okay. So it's like giving yourself that space to rest, go through things. And we don't like that space because we like this like daily challenge, daily pursuit, daily this, but we have to be able to like rest, recover, rejuvenate ourselves so that we're ready for that next climb. So I think we're very uncomfortable in that space where we're supposed to be resting, taking the time to kind of be thoughtful, reflective before our next go at something. But we don't like that space because we're used to going at 100 miles an hour, pushing really hard towards these goals. And when we don't have that, we don't do well with that space. What about pushing past the time of rest and now it's time to find a new goal? So you've decided to retire And now you're in this space of finding the next goal, which for you happened to be performance psychology. And the reason I think your perspective and your voice is so unique is number one, you've been through it. But number two, you're dealing with NFL athletes. And these are individuals that are chasing such a laudable goal, such a celebrated goal, a goal that's easy to get excited about. It's easy to be passionate about it. However, when they finish that career, when you finished your career, there's a chance that you may never find a goal that's as professionally fulfilling, or there's a chance that that space of searching and uncertainty may be much longer than you think it is. I, I had an NFL linebacker on named David Voboris. I, I chatted about this with him, and he told me that he wasn't worried about peaking professionally or making money. His anxiety came from this worry that he would never find a goal like that again. He would never find that high again. He would never find that passion again or have 75,000 fans cheering his name. So I want to know how you dealt with it. It sounds like maybe you found that next goal pretty fast and were pretty passionate about it or very passionate about it. But how do you prepare yourself or an athlete for a transition that may mean a long period of time where you don't have another goal that you consider worthy? Yeah, I will say on my personal journey, it was not pretty. I always say that there's always these stories in between. But the truth is, is after I did not make the Olympic team, I was like very lost. And I would say that I am very grateful to have wonderful friends and family. So I was training in DC at the time and moved back in with my best friend and Gaffigan. And she would say that I was probably miserable to live with because I was angry, I was hurt, I was sad, I was lost. The thing that saved me, and I, and I say saved in terms of just like kept me afloat, gave me some meaning and purpose in my life during that time was I was a volunteer coach at Nebraska. So my college coach welcomed me back with open arms. I was able to volunteer coach. My body was pretty beat up from the training. So running was not fun. So I just needed to like basically do some like PT therapy to just kind of like I had some like sciatica and my hamstrings were just ripped apart from training. So I was volunteer coaching and the girls on that Nebraska team, they were my therapy because I'd go to practice. I love being with the girls. I love being with the team. I love being around those young athletes, being able to like mentor them, talk to them, hear what was going on in their life. And then they would say like, Annie, come run with us. And I would reluctantly be like, fine, but I loved it. Right. So I would run with them and that gave me a sense of purpose, joy, being with them like really helped me heal from running. I think one of my post 
trials interviews was like, running doesn't love me. It's kind of, it's painful, right? Because you want running to love you. You have this like painful experiences and you need time to heal from that. So I've always loved running, enjoyed running, but I was like, didn't love it. I was like pretty burnt out. Having those girls to run with, talk to, brought back the joy for running for me. And then in that, I was, I vividly remember this memory. So I was like in at home in Nebraska at my parents' house talking to my mom and I was going on and on and on about the girls and and the guys that I was coaching and just like how much I like love that and how much I thought about this and how we were going to train this person in this way and this, 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 da, 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 da. and my mom was like, you're like really into this. Is this something that you've thought about like pursuing, which then kind of like led me back to like sports psychology. I didn't necessarily put everything together, but if I think back to the things that really drive me, why I love sport in general, why I love sports psychology is I just really believe that athletes need an unbiased space to just kind of figure stuff out and vent and have someone that's supportive of them through and through. You're on their team, helping them through, guiding them through. And that kind of led me to then figure out, okay, I'm into sports psychology. Okay, what what programs are there actually out there? Okay, where do I fit with this? And then I just kind of started diving in and use more of that competitiveness of, okay, I have this goal. Like, what do I need to figure out? Where am I going to go to school? Like, who's going to be my mentor? What's going to be cost effective, right? And then landed at the University of Missouri. Do you spend time talking to your NFL athletes about that transition to retirement? Do you spend time talking about this goal you're chasing someday is going to go away and you're going to have to find meaning and purpose elsewhere? So I would say that in general, I'll, I'll circle back to myself for a second. So I like was unwilling to look at life beyond sport because for me, I felt like, and I think a lot of athletes feel like this. I felt like if I started thinking about that next step, I was cheating on myself. I wasn't fully invested in my goal. So I have my dream job. Like, why would I even think about something else? Because I feel like I'm like not betting. I'm not all in. And so I think I'm sensitive to that with athletes in terms of understanding where they are. The athletes that I like work with, it's it's like time and place, right? So if you're in the middle of season, things are like very hectic. It's Olympic year. It's whatever. That's not the time to like talk about some of those things. I think that there's a time and a space. And within a lot of organizations, within NFL, NBA, Olympic, NCAA, there are people that are player development, more like life skills, kind of helping people set up for that next phase. It's kind of really understanding what the goal and the vision is. But then I think it's also really important to understand like where this athlete is, really being sensitive to where they're at to begin those conversations. If they bring it up, that's a really good thing. A lot of athletes have kind of that next step thought about, but again, I'm just sensitive to really wanting to like best support the person and understand where they are before I like dive in and and start making suggestions about their life. Yeah, I'm so fascinated with this space because number one, I've been there before. Many of the things that you're saying resonate with me. The idea of being lost after I shut down a company in 2020, the idea of not having a plan B because that took away from plan A. That was my thought process too when I was running that company. But once I got past that, I just really kind of became obsessed with this idea of resilience, which I know you study and I want to get your thoughts on because I held resilience in this high regard as if once I'm resilient, once I get back up off the mat and start giving you effort again, problem solved. I've solved the problem. 
But that's not true. And I kind of learned that the hard way, that resilience is not success. It doesn't mean that you're going to find a goal you're passionate about. It doesn't mean that you're going to be happy. There's space between that effort or resilience and happiness. So I want to know what you think about resilience and how it relates to happiness and fulfillment. There's this really beautiful model of resiliency that I that I go to because it helps me just in my mind think about resiliency. And I think this is a word, my job before this, I was working with the Air Force. And so resiliency is very big in the military. Resiliency to me is a lot like motivation. It's very personal. Depending on a person, depending on a person's values and what's important to them, what their life looks like in terms of that resiliency, it's, it's going to look different depending on what the situation is. I, I guess I, I like take a deeper dive and want to talk deeper about like what is resilience, right? Because we throw this term around, what do we actually mean, right? Do it. So at the heart of it is more of my philosophical basis, which is like I love Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, Existentialism, which is all like meaning and purpose in one's life. And that is all very personal. But it kind of back to that self-awareness piece, that self-study piece, it's the meaning and purpose has to be right for you. Part of that resiliency, we can't just like bounce back without having a deeper understanding of how we're moving through this. And I think a big part of that for me in my life, and I think most resilience models would be like social support. So who are the people around me? This sense of community, connectedness, togetherness, coming from a small town, coming from Nebraska, like those things are really important to me. And I think even now it's more difficult to work through hard things because we oftentimes feel alone. We're very isolated. It feels very lonely. We don't talk about things on a deeper level, which just make those experiences pretty difficult. But I think if I come back to really understanding what that meaning and purpose is, that's all unique to us. And we all have these areas of passion in our life that we have to take the time to search for and identify and think about. And that has to be, that has to be for like us. No one can tell us what we need to do because that ultimately won't lead to fulfillment. We actually have to like take the time to understand these like deeper, maybe not so positive feeling emotions, but kind of go through that difficulty and struggle with that. And I think that's like when we actually like find our path out or find that next step in terms of what we want to do, where we want to go, more of that meaning and purpose for our life. So for you, resilience is more than effort. Resilience is more than continued pursuit of a goal in the face of adversity. It's it's more of a, a soul searching endeavor. So I think there's different types, right? If we're talking about being resilient on a football field, if we're talking about being resilient as a track and field athlete, if we're talking about being resilient at work, the deeper levels of that are meaning and purpose in our life. Do we feel valued? Do we feel cared about? Do we feel connected? And those things I think all lead to more of that resiliency that we're all like looking for. But it's it's difficult. It's complex because again, back to understanding our own psychology, like we're the ones that are directing our life. We're the ones that have to sort through that and decide, make the decision for what we want and how we want to live our life. What I'm hearing is bounce back with a purpose. If you're just focused on bouncing back or just focusing on moving, that's maybe not enough to get you there. Bounce back with some sort of a purpose. Does that fly? I would say we have to have like motivation to want to do that, right? And it has to be meaningful in our life 
to want to like try harder and again and again when we've like faced that. And so it does test us. But I think on a deeper level, those challenges just have us deeper understanding of what we really want, what we're really after in life. I've always felt like I try to fall back on discipline instead of motivation. So like after I shut down that company and I, like you said, you weren't very fun to be around. My wife will tell you I was not very fun to be around. It was just discipline. I get up at five and I start working out at 520. That's how I start my day. I make these calls every single day. And that's the thing that came easy to me. That effort I'm disciplined. I'm going to get up. I'm going to work out. I'm going to make these calls. I'm going to send these emails. I can do those things. What was really interesting to me is that was a long way from being happy again. That was a long way from finding my next goal. And that was the learning experience for me is that discipline, that resilience, if you will. Maybe it's what you're saying didn't didn't include that next purpose. And I was still searching for that because I was in a place like you of being uncertain and searching and lost. And it was that piece that maybe was missing. But the interesting thing that I'm trying to reconcile real time is that's not always within reach. You know, you can't rely on discipline to find a next purpose or next goal. And maybe what it means is you've got to put it outside of professional success or athletic success. You have to put it in to my daughters and to my wife and allow that to be your purpose, maybe so. But anyways, so you go ahead, add to that if you want to. I, I just think that we are very comfortable as athletes with having those daily goals, having that self-discipline and having that like challenge in front of us. So we're actually able to track that progress. Because that's normal for us. Like one plus one equals two, right? If I do this, this, and this, it leads to this outcome. And I will say that professionally, it's difficult for me because I liked the track, right? I liked having objective measures. I'm better than you. I beat you. In your career and in the real world, it's not that clear cut. So even if I know my skill set and I know what I can offer, it doesn't mean that I'm the best sports psychology professional, or I'm the best researcher or the best at my job. And so in those ways, I've had to kind of like lean into that discomfort of like, okay, like this is a different game. Professionally, it's a different game. And, you know, you've got to find more of that like meaning and purpose for like what you want to create, what value you want to share, what joy you're going to find in your day, what goals you're going to set for yourself. That's going to bring me like joy and excitement. And I'm a very curious person and I like to learn because I'm curious, because I have this like thirst for knowledge and understanding, like I can set those goals for myself, which helps me to feel a sense of achievement. Um, And there's been many times where it's like, you know, I'm kind of down a rabbit hole. I'm like learning about something. And then who knows, like a couple months later, I'm asked about something and I'm like, oh, wait, here you go. Here's all this information about this specific topic. And I know it just because like I spent the time to kind of do do that research because it was genuinely interesting to me. So I think in those ways, we like to have that objective goal. Here's where I'm going. I can see it. It's tangible, all of that. But I think more of like my joy for my work is just like really understanding the things that like bring me passion that I'm curious in and kind of follow all of those things. And then for me, it's kind of, that's kind of led me to where I am now, kind of just like followed those paths of curiosity and wanting to learn, which has kind of led me to like where I am now. It sounds like you're saying to celebrate those small victories in those difficult spaces. 
let's transition and move forward a bit. I want to talk to you about another subject that I don't think I'm very good at, and that's contentment. <laughs> I want to know how you think about contentment. I, No matter what my achievement has been in life, you talked about athletes being hard on themselves. That's my default setting is that could have been better or I could do more. I'm grateful for all of my achievements. However, I largely... If I'm being honest, think of myself as an underachiever. I should be doing more at this age. I'm comparing myself to someone else, which I think many would look at my life and say that's way out of touch. Like I know my my mother and father would, but I want to know how you think about contentment. How do you talk to your athletes about contentment? How should we frame contentment? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it a bit of both? In general, if we think of the athlete language, contentment is bad. We're never like nothing is ever good enough. That's what's ingrained in our brains from a very young age. You did this, but you could have done this. You ran this, but now you want this, right? I mean, even if I think about like my PR, it's like that was never good enough. I needed to run under four minutes, right? So there was always this like push for better, 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 more, more, more. That's how we're conditioned from like an early age. And I would say in that athletic mind or even just our minds in general, right, like when we have those achievements, we get that like dopamine hit. It feels good. Like we want more of that. That is probably playing against us if we think about contentment. I guess I like know myself and I'm probably guilty of everything. Like I, I really like those challenges. I don't want to feel complacent. I always want to feel like I'm learning. I'm growing in these ways. And so it's probably something that I wrestle with as well in terms of, is this okay? Should I be doing more? gosh, I have all these other things that I could like be better at or want to learn or, or whatever, want to contribute to the world. But then you have to kind of take a step back and be like, okay, chill. Let's just take a deep breath. What are you going to get done today? What are you going to move forward on today? There are moments when it hits me more when I have those like deeper levels of reflection. But I think, again, it all just comes down to like thinking about your life, what you actually want to set out to do, what's actually meaningful for you and then setting up, setting on that path. So I think, again, it all, it's all coming back to like having meaning and purpose. And for me, right, time with my family is really important. Time with my friends is really important. Working hard is really important to me. And so how do I balance all of those things? Because they're all equally important to me. Do you spend a lot of time with your NFL athletes talking about that balance? Because you just said earlier the, the most unique thing about athletes is this perfectionism which is closely linked with never being content, which we just kind of said is a good thing for an athlete. So that's why it's it's an interesting discussion and topic to me is that tendency to never be content growing up as an athlete has bled into all aspects of my life, except my family. I'm very content. My two daughters, they're the best thing that's ever happened to me. I, I can't imagine anything better. So I would say... I found contentment there, but everywhere else in life, it's always, I'm underachieving. I could be better. I could make more money. I could, could have executed better on this podcast. I could have asked this question to end better. I could have set that up better. Do you spend a lot of time talking about that thin line or this tightrope we're walking between pushing yourself to be great and finding some sort of peace and contentment? It comes down to like, are those productive things? From what you're describing, it seems like it's like it almost creates more internal turmoil than it does like production. Is this like a functional aspect? Is this helping me in a productive way? Is this workability, right? So one of my one of my dear friends, we talk about like workability. Like how's that working out for you? 
Is this working for you? I like that. Yeah. Balance is extremely difficult. As a professional athlete, there there isn't balance. Like there's not. You pretty much and I think even in life or there's like how much like how much time do you actually have to yourself a day? Maybe an hour, maybe two hours. That's like maybe there's some flexibility in that time, which is not a lot. You know, when we're in season at seven days a week, twelve to fourteen hour days, like there's there's not much time for balance. I think the challenge the challenge is like, what are you gonna do with that time that you actually have? If you think about your day, if you think about all the hours in the day, the time that you're required, but then that space that you actually have, like what are you doing in that time to bring joy to your life, to fill your cup up, to like actually try to enjoy life, even though you have this like very tight schedule with like limited time to just limited time for freedom to do what you want to do. When you find athletes that have fallen into these cycles of unproductive behaviors or unproductive thoughts, what have you found to be most helpful in changing, consistently changing behaviors or changing thoughts? One, you have to talk about what got you there. Like, how did you get into this space? And what were all these things that maybe you're holding on inside? Is there resentment? Is there anger? What's going on underneath that like tip of the iceberg, right? So we see kind of this little space and but like what's what's going on? Like what led us here? And you have to be willing and vulnerable to go through some of those things to then understand like why you're in this space right now and why you're feeling this way. And then it's setting small, tangible goals to start shifting you in the right direction. Because as athletes, we want to go from A to Z and we're not patient. We don't have time for that. We have very high expectations for ourselves. Our learning curve is accelerated, but that's not realistic. So it's like, what's a small step and a shift in a, in a direction that's going to help us move into a better, healthier habits or better thinking, more productive thinking or behaviors? I love that. I love that. Well, let's talk about something that we, we spoke about on our last call, which is this line between healthy examination and rumination or neurosis. I think a lot about which feelings and emotions are worthy of that lingering and talking about it in vulnerability and what aspects of anxiety and mental struggle are just a natural part of the human experience. So we both, I think, grew up with that suck it up, tough it up mentality, don't make a mountain out of a mohill. But things have shifted greatly. And I think you're you're part of that. And I think there's a lot of positives to that. But I also want to know, do you believe it's it's possible to lean too much into vulnerability or emotion? Have you ever told an athlete they need to seek you out less? It's individually based and it's time and space. This is like where the mental skill of compartmentalization is like very important because there are times when we do need to compartmentalize, but compartmentalize means basically put on pause to then debrief and go through later. It doesn't mean compartmentalize, sweep it under the rug, never look at it, never talk about it. It just means like, okay, we're going to have to go through that later. There is specific times. The night before a competition, the day of a game, like obviously sometimes things happen, but there are times and spaces where it's like, hey, this is really important, but right now we need to focus on A, B, and C and then come back to that. 
I think as athletes, we're like very good at the compartmentalization, probably too good at it. And we just are very good at compartmentalizing it, sweeping it under the rug, and then never talking about it. Probably more of the latter is, okay, when do we need to have some time, have some space? It's off season, it's downtime, it's an off day to maybe start sorting through or talking about some of these other vulnerable pieces. We spoke earlier about kind of creating negative energy, the way you speak about things and the way you talk about things. And so I think about a lot. One of the phrases I've said on this podcast before, and I I journaled, was give your emotion all the space you need, but Clay, make plenty of time for kicking life in the ass. And what I was trying to tell myself is like, don't live there. It's important to examine your thoughts. It's important to examine your emotions, but you also have to separate when it's time to suck it up, when it's time to move on. And I find that can be a delicate balance for sure, especially in this time of be vulnerable. And oftentimes I'm rewarded for that. I'll share on a podcast and I'll get a lot of people reaching out and reward me for that. And that feels good. It feels really good. So then you do it more. And I say, well, wait a second. Am I leaning into it a little too much? Am I being fraudulent here? Should I pull back? And that's just a delicate line. I'm interested how you maybe walk that with some of your athletes. Yeah, I would say there's a really good book, Emotional Agility. And I think that's like pretty good because we do want to examine these emotions, right? And have an understanding of why we feel what we feel. And even just to take it a step further, just in terms of individual personality differences, there are some of us that like have and feel a wide range of emotions, right? So we feel the highs of the highs, we feel the lows of the lows. We're very aware of our emotions. We're very aware of their presence in terms of how we feel during the day. I would say that I'm a pretty emotional person. I'm very aware of how I'm feeling. And there has to be times where it needs, where I have to like tell myself, like, chill out. Like you need to focus right now. Like you need to like disconnect emotionally and like focus on what you need to get done right now. And then there are times when it's like, okay, now I need to like really spend some time and like feel through this, let myself feel, try to have an understanding of what's going on with that. You were going into the complexity of human beings and how everyone's unique. And so I actually, I want to ask you about that. You deal constantly with human beings that are diverse in experience, that are diverse in background. You have the complexity of the human mind. How do you incorporate that complexity into your practice? Because one of the things that turns me off in the human improvement space, I don't even know if that's a word, is if a thought leader or an authority figure seems to always have an answer or speaks in these absolutes, we all should do this or we all do this. I find myself thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me or that's not my experience or that's too simplistic. So maybe elaborate there on how do you deal with that complexity of each individual that walks into your office? One of my favorite things about my job is just like all of the personalities. I've always loved like people's personalities because it's incredible to me just how much people's personalities vary. There's no two people that are like similar, right? So people's mannerisms, their humor, their interactions, the nuances, the idiosyncrasies, like I just I love that about people. Like I just find people so fascinating. When you get to experience and work with all these different personalities, I love that. Right. And I'm also, I don't have to coach. Like, I don't have to coach on the field, on the track, on the basketball court, any of that. So I can imagine, like, if you're trying to coach or lead, sometimes some personalities might really get on your nerves. But in general, like, I can really find the beauty and just the variability, 
variability in people's personalities. Does that mean you're avoiding absolutes often and tailoring your feedback and your instruction almost individually? Yeah. And that's probably the beauty of my job, right? Like I don't have to speak in absolute. My job is to like literally let's set some goals together. How can I best support you? Each different person like has different things that they can work on and get better on. For me to be effective at my job, I have to definitely understand the whole person, understand maybe some areas of strength, some areas of weakness or vulnerability. But then again, like I'm a very much autonomy-based person, meaning this is your journey. I'm here to support you. You have to be the one to make these decisions. I'm here to support you in any way I can and help give you insight, help try to guide you, help teach you some things. You're the one that has to like be engaged. There's a quote that I love. I can't teach you anything. I can only make you think. And I think about that. If you don't want to learn, I can't really do anything for you, but I can make you think. I can make you reflect and I can help support you. But at the end of the day, like this is, this is your journey in your life. I love that. I love thinking of these thought leaders or reframing them as guides more than giving you answers. That resonates with me for sure. And I think that's what, when I do get frustrated, maybe I'll think of that way, is this is a guide. This is someone who's trying to make me think. They're not giving me answers or they can't give me answers. Let's wrap this up with one last question. And this is going to be a bit of a, a change from where I've been going. I just want to know what's something you've learned or developed in this pursuit of performance psychology that you wish 18-year-old or 20-year-old Anne would have known? What advice would you have given to yourself? The advice that I would have given to myself, I was like, and I still am like very critical and like hard on myself. So maybe that's that's part of it. But I think just like really recognizing you're doing a good job, you know, like you're doing a good job and just stay on that journey. Stay committed to those daily habits, those daily goals, I I say this to athletes a lot, like you're closer than you think you are. You are. It's just like a matter of being patient, staying committed to those daily habits, those daily goals, and being compassionate and encouraging to yourself as opposed to more destructive and and self-critical. Developing that habit of self-talk, positive self-talk, encouraging, being compassionate, being kind and gentle with yourself actually is way more productive than being critical and be more critical and negative towards yourself. I think that's great. That's a great place to end it. And I will say the tone and the delivery of you're doing a good job is perfect. You've clearly had some practice sitting in front of people (laughs) saying that. It felt like you said it just exactly for me and designed that for me. That was, that's perfect. And I love ending it on that and speaking those words to yourself internally. But this has been great. And I appreciate you so much. Thank you for your insight. Thank you for sharing your feedback. It's, it's just been fun. This has been, it's been wonderful. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you.